Hey, Three Crosses family, AJ Venegas here back on the Going Deeper podcast. I'm the pastor of Life Groups and Discipleship, and today we'll be going over Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, talking about the unlikely hero, the transformation of Saul into Paul. And so with that, let's go deeper. Well, we're back in the podcast studio with Pastor Danny Strange. Pastor Danny, after a week off of the podcast, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. We're going to jump right into Galatians chapter 2, talking about Paul's scene of confrontation uh, here. And I'll just go ahead and read the passages, and then we'll jump into the questions. So without further ado, here we go. Verse 11 reads, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So right off the bat here in verse 11, uh, we get introduced to some uh, topics that in the sermon I saw that you um, attempted to explain. I wanted to ask to go a little bit deeper on them. It says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Speaking from personal experience here, I think one of the most difficult things to do when I'm reading Paul's letters is to track his movements throughout the book of Acts. I, I think we run into quirky names like Antioch or Cephas or names that just seem foreign to us. And in fact, they are actually foreign to us. So we've seen him camping out in this place called Damascus, where his life gets radically turned upside down. Then last week we mentioned there may have been some initial movements from Damascus to Arabia for a while, then a return back to Damascus. And Paul ends up in Jerusalem after three years. And then Galatians 2 goes on to also mention that he has some stops in Syria, in Cilicia, and then chapter 2 opens up by saying 14 years later, he goes up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. So all that being said, there's a lot of foreign names here, a lot of cities, a lot of locations that we're not quite familiar with because they were in an ancient context. So before we jump into the meat of the the material here, I was wondering if you could help our listeners orient their mind around where is Paul? What is exactly going on in his life? Where is he at in his ministry? And what's so crucial about this Antioch place? Yeah, so Paul, in the beginning of Galatians chapter 2, kind of walks us through a timeline of his ministry. And he walks us through this timeline to paint a very specific picture. And the picture he's trying to paint is that for the last 15, 20 years, however long it's been, he has unwavered in his role as being the apostle to the Gentiles. That he said from the very beginning, Jesus called him to preach the gospel of Gentile inclusion. That means Jewish folks and Gentile folks together in one church. He's trying to say for a long, long time, I've been on this trajectory to compare that 
to his conversation he's about to have with Peter, where he says, opposed to Peter, who was on the trajectory with me, but somehow is backslidden and now is trying to cause Greek people to follow Jewish customs. So Paul is well into his ministry. There's a couple of critical junctures that have happened along the way. I mentioned that Paul was called to be a minister to the Gentiles. Uh, We know that there was a a famous meeting, I think it was back in Acts 12 or so, uh, where Paul and Barnabas were sent off on a missionary journey to the Gentiles. There have been conversations in the church about the requirements that would be held for the Gentiles, a famous passage that says we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God in relation to their customs. And Peter was a part of a lot of those conversations. Uh, The commentaries that I've been reading uh, says that when Paul is confronting Peter, it's on the other side of all of those conversations. And now Peter is starting to change his tune in a place called Antioch, which is important because when you read the book of Acts, Antioch becomes the pinnacle of Gentile inclusion in the church. We read the leaders of the church at Antioch in, I think it's Acts 13.1, gives us a list of the leaders of the church and it is a multi-ethnic group. There are men from Africa. There are uh, Greek-born folks. There are Jewish-born folks. It is a a group of diverse individuals comprising the leadership of the church. So all of this frames the concept that Paul is saying the church of Jesus Christ is a place where Jewish background people and non-Jewish background people have the same rights and privileges, and you do not need to become a Jew to be a Christian. And so this is the very thing that he's confronting Peter of in front of everyone. I'm wondering if you have any helpful tips of reading Paul and trying to track all these movements where he's going uh, as you're studying the text yourself. Yeah, it's hard because there's a lot of overlaps. You read Galatians 2, it seems to overlap with Acts, I think, 15, uh, where there's the Jerusalem Council. So it's hard to know, okay, is this the same meeting, a different meeting? And so for me, I I jump into commentaries. I have a a Galatians commentary that I've been relying on for this message specifically, kind of helps chart the timeline. I look at... uh, Paul's uh, writing in Galatians 2 to kind of watch, okay, 30 years here, 14 years here. I read a book one time called Paul that was kind of a historical (laughs) fiction, kind of like a, it was really a a historical fictionalized account of Paul's life, kind of based on what we learn. Um, And so really it's a lot of stuff I've picked up over time. I felt like Larry, Pastor Larry last week did a good job of helping us understand the context. And so it's so funny, even someone like me, who's got a lot of theological education under my belt, a lot of time in the text. I feel like every time I approach a text like this, I got to kind of recalibrate, be like, okay, where is he? Where has he been? And so I go to the same tools every time to kind of get my bearings. Well, let's jump right into Galatians 2.11 with that context in our mind. When Cephas came to this place, Antioch, it says that Paul opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And uh, to quote one of our staff members here, this passage starts off incredibly spicy. (laughs) Opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. The Scoville levels are through the roof here. Uh, That word stood condemned, katagonosko in the Greek, um, used in different places to literally mean condemned before God or condemned before a judgment place, condemned to death. And so Paul's coming out strong here. He's coming out real hot. I even wonder when I read this verse, if he's coming out hot, even in calling Peter Cephas. And so Mm. Cephas uh, is, I mean, it's a Greek word for stone. Uh, Petros is Peter's name. It's the Greek word for rock. 
could be a nickname. I could be reading too much into it. I don't think any <laughs> of the commentaries I read had anything to say about it. But what it does do is draw attention to Peter's name, whether it's Petros or Cephas, which was not the name his parents gave him, right? The the name that we knew him by in the Gospels was Simon Peter, uh, and Jesus kind of doubles down on the Greek part of his name, not the Hebrew Simeon, Simon, but the Greek Petros, uh, to kind of say, you know, on this rock, I'll build my church. That's the, the declaration he makes around Peter. And so Paul had a similar name change too. He went from Saul to Paul from a, a Hebrew name in alignment with the king of the Old Testament to the Hebrew, to the Greek word Paul, Paulos, uh, as the minister to the Gentiles. And I can't help but think that Paul is thinking about Simon Peter's name change to the Greek side of his name to draw out. Remember, the trajectory of this faith is for the Gentiles, right? Mm. So even in drawing out his name, not Simon, uh, but Cephas, right? A Greek word for Peter. Uh, Paul may be even drawing out, hey, man, remember when Jesus himself doubled down on the Greek side of your name? Why are you trying to become more Jewish, man? You know, why are you aligning with these false teachers? It reminds me when like a parent uses the middle name, yes. you know, it means you're in real trouble. And so <laughs> it seems like Paul's uh, pulling out all the stops to say, hey, this is absolutely serious, which begs the question, what is actually going on? And so in verse 12, it talks about for before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, speaking of Cephas here. But when they, these certain men arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because Cephas was afraid of, quote unquote, those who belong to the circumcision group. And reading through the commentaries, there was a lot of debate on who are these men, these mysterious men that come from James, those who belong to the circumcision group. Um, some ideas, were they Jewish Christians that held circumcision tightly and they wanted to see that uh, run throughout the church, these Judaizers, or were they Jewish Christians that didn't really care? Or were they non-Christian, just flat out Jews? Or were they Gentile Christians enamored by Judaism? And so I'm wondering if you could get our minds into that first century context, place us there. Uh, what is the tension that they're facing? And um, what's so destructive that, that Paul feels it's absolutely necessary right here to stand up and proclaim that someone is condemned. Yeah, it's, you know, this is a, like you said, we don't know exactly who these men are. Uh, kind of the, the phrase that a lot of commentators use for men like this in the early church were Judaizers, uh, which is a word to say, hey, you're a Christian person, great, but you need to become Christ Jewish to be truly Christian, whether it's like, hey, in order to experience the fullness of Christianity, you need to add Judaism to it, or like others have said in the New Testament, hey, unless you're obedient to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved, right? Which was a, as trying to kind of dial down what are the chief facets of the gospel message that Jesus proclaimed, this is one of the things that at the first apostolic council they had to wrestle with because for the first time in human history, not only were Gentile folks being saved, but Gentile folks were being saved in a way where they were receiving the full rights and privileges as like firstborn sons, as Jewish people. And Antioch, you mentioned Antioch earlier. Uh, one of the distinguishing things about Antioch was it was the first time that Christian, Christianity was no longer seen as a Jewish movement. Uh, we see in Acts that the Christians were first called Christians, right? At 
Antioch. And so Antioch was a place where they stopped being known as a Jewish sect and started to get a name of their own. And so this is kind of part of the identity crisis of Christianity was, okay, is this becoming too far departed from Judaism or is this a totally new uh, religion? Uh, there's a great book by Jerry Sitzer that that talks about the the early Christian church kind of being this third way. They weren't Romans. They weren't Jewish people. They were this different way of life that looked a lot like Judaism but they integrated really well into Greco-Roman culture, but they had a worship of their own. They had religious experiences of their own. Uh, and they started moving from Sabbath worship to Sunday worship. It was becoming less Jewish. And so there's a whole fight of how Jewish do you have to be to be a believer in Jesus Christ? And the Jerusalem council got together and said, you know what? We, we shouldn't make it hard for the Gentiles turning to God. They don't need to obey the law of Moses. They don't need to practice the Jewish rite of circumcision. Uh, they need, they've been baptized. They've received the Holy Spirit. Obviously they, they need to avoid sexual immorality, the pagan practices there. They should stay away from meat sacrifice to idols, the blood of strangled animals, some of these kind of pagan rituals that they felt would be a stumbling block uh, to the church for some reason in the midst of that. Um, so stay away from sin, stay away from some of these pa pa pagan rituals from the Greek culture. Um, but no, you don't need to become Jewish to be Christian. And yet other folks were coming in saying, no, yes, you do. And so for Paul, and for us, 2,000 years later, this was a gospel issue that we are saved and justified by faith alone, not by the law of Moses, not by the works of the law. The law pointed out our sin. It cannot save us. Let's not go back in time. Like Paul says in Galatians, try to reach your goal by human effort. Let's stay the course. Let's preach the gospel. So for Paul, this was a huge gospel issue. The language in this text is fascinating because... Uh, he began to draw back, Cephas began to draw back and separate himself. Sort of like language that revolves around separating yourself from something that's unclean. And so we're obviously not dealing with this particular debate, this first century debate between circumcised party and the Gentiles. But I'm imagining these type of divisions might exist today. And so as you were preparing for this sermon, were there any specific divisions or people that we tend to draw back or uh, draw away from that you had in mind while you were preparing this? I think the what came into my mind, I was thinking the book of James uh, talks about showing favoritism within the church. And uh, in the book of James, when it talks about favoritism, it kind of gives this example of, you know, a, a poor person comes into your church, a rich person comes to your church. He's like, you should not make the poor person go sit in this not nice place to sit, but bring the rich person up to the front seat of your church, right? Because he doubles down and says, you know, in the church, we're all the same. You should not show favoritism in Jesus's church. And I think part of what, what James draws out, and that's what I was thinking about, is that part of the condition of the human heart is that we are drawn to people uh, that we relate to. We're drawn to people that we want to be drawn to. And it's easy for us to be sucked away um, from the multi-everything church, multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multi-demographic church that Jesus died to create. And so I think what I was thinking about mostly was kind of at a, at a high level that the church of Jesus is a place where we all together are equal at the foot of the cross, but we all need to be aware that we will be tempted to get sucked in and only spend time with people who fit some certain kind of mold. Right. In this passage, it was more dangerous than that. It wasn't just Peter hanging out with his friends and not with the new folks, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is what I was kind of thinking about in church. But this was about uh, moralistic, legalistic, 
almost cult-like people coming in, bringing a new gospel and sucking him away. So it was way more dangerous than merely, you know, AJ's hanging out with his friends in Cafe Four instead of meeting the new visitor at Three Crosses on Sunday. But I was thinking about the whole thing, that there's part of our hearts that's drawn to just be with people like us um, and not embrace the beauty and the diversity of the church that Jesus died to create. It's such an important topic because uh, Peter's actions here are so powerful that in verse 13, it says the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And so in the book of Acts, we see Paul mentioning this close friend and coworker named Barnabas. Uh, This guy was Paul's advocate early on. We talked about that last week. He was a mentor of Paul at Antioch. He traveled with Paul early in his ministry efforts. And when you think about Barnabas's background, it makes it quite unthinkable that he would be led away by something so simple as an act of drawing away from somebody that Peter is doing here. And uh, I want to pair this with the opening image that you drew in your sermon about those two people that you knew that were led astray over time. And uh, what was going on in my mind, and as I was thinking about Barnabas's story, was that if it can happen to this guy, this superstar in the faith, is could this actually happen to me? And I actually had like this sense of fear going on in my heart. Uh, what happens if I'm led astray, you know, by something so uh, culturally accepted? What happens if I'm led too far astray? You know, I have so many friends that are influenced by this culture of deconstruction, uh, maybe started off in the church, but then were seen to led astray. Um, what if I become one of those people? And so I'm wondering if you could address people that may have had that feeling going on. What do you say to people who look at the scene with Barnabas being led astray and feeling for Barnabas and feeling like, man, what if I become Barnabas here? I think all of us have a proclivity to become Barnabas here. You know, I mentioned that we have uh, in our hearts a desire to to just be drawn to people just like us. That's part of that lesson that we see. The other thing that we know is that all of us in our hearts, for some reason, we all want religion to be something where I do good things so that God will accept me. That's feels to be the default position of every religion, every human heart, and Christianity is diametrically opposed. Whereas no, God has accepted you because of the faithfulness of Jesus. His death makes you clean. His resurrection gives you life. So you are accepted just as you are. You don't have to add anything to it. And now come and follow him and learn what it means to be his disciple. And so all of us have something in us that that is wired uh, to want to make works uh, a, a major part of being justified by God. So in a sense, there is a, a heart condition here that can draw us into it. I do think that we are in a very different place for 2000 years later, where I don't imagine AJ, you are going to be someone who hears this message about, oh, I need to obey the law of Moses to be saved. And you're like, <laughs> right, right. you're right, you're right, right. Because what we have on our side is fights like this. We have uh, the Jerusalem council. We've got Nicaea. We've got all of these different councils of the early church. If you follow the church history and we see that they dialed in, this is what must be believed to be saved. Hmm. And so Yes, we do have folks that I know in my life, you probably do in your life, who get sucked into false religions. I think of people in our own church who got, uh, I know a family that got drawn into 
uh, of religious cults, Mormonism, that is not Christian at all. Um, and yet it smelled Christian to them. They liked its family values. And all of a sudden now they're moved into a place where they're worshiping a God named Jesus, who is not the Jesus of the Bible. And now they've found themselves in a false religious construct that does not lead to eternal life because they were sucked away by false teachers and false teaching, right? So that's a that happens. I don't think that's going to happen to you because I feel like you have this foundation of your faith and you know the difference between these things. They were unaware of that. Mm. But what I do think happens to people like you, like me all the time, is that there are teachings that are like right on the fringe of what we believe in orthodoxy that, that sound good and they lead us astray because it seems good to us and there's some peer pressure that pulls us that way, right? And so I haven't seen a lot of people converted to religious cults or false religions in the midst of the pandemic. I've seen a lot of Christians in our church, though, get sucked into politics at an appropriate level, like in a sense where it becomes an idol in their heart. I see people uh, and churches, Christian churches, start to become overly legalistic because they start saying, hey, you know what? We need to have standards around here. Jesus died for this place. It's important how you dress. It's important uh, how we present ourselves in this way or that way. It's important how we, we don't, church is not a place for non-believers. And all of a sudden the church starts becoming legalistic and overly uh, rigid where it feels like, okay, I get it, but I don't think that's the church that we're supposed to have here. I see on the other side, people get sucked into licentiousness where they say, you know what? Their friends are saying, you know, God doesn't care what kind of language you use. God doesn't care what you drink. God doesn't care what you smoke. God really cares about your, it's almost this new Gnosticism where morality doesn't matter at all. And they start drifting away from a lifestyle of worship and holiness. And it feels like, okay, I I get it. I, I get that, right? That Jesus died for sin and we're forgiven, but the Bible also says we shouldn't sin hoping grace would increase, right? And so I see people get drawn in these different places. Um, I think all of us are susceptible to be drawn into things that are on the fringes of of where our foundation is. And so my challenge for, for all of us, and this is part of the reason we have a podcast, is that we would have a strong foundation built on the essentials of the faith that we would know what we believe so we can stand firm on it. Because I am sure there are things, AJ, that you can get sucked into, but that's going to be very different than what right? Someone who doesn't have the same foundation as you can get sucked into. And that's going to be very different than someone who doesn't understand the gospel, what they can get sucked into. So I do believe we can all get sucked into anything, but the stronger the foundation of truth, the stronger your, your Christian worldview, the stronger you understand the gospel and its implications, the more you understand the historical interpretation of these things, the less likely you are to get drawn into error. And so my challenge for you, for me, for all of us is that we would know what we believe so we can stand firm upon it and hold fast to what was delivered to us from the apostles and through the councils of the church. I noticed that this was an in-house thing. It was a debate between Paul and Peter and we have Barnabas acting here. So are we supposed to turn our minds to people who we believed were once saved and have lost their faith or just... Uh, thinking about drifting away, if that makes sense. I think in this passage, I kind of think it's a third thing. I think that, mm. you know, when Paul says even Barnabas was driven astray, I, I think what was, and Barnabas was not led astray, but even like Barnabas was starting to listen to some of his teachings. I, I think the warning that we see here is that if we don't guard the gospel and have critical conversations around what we believe and how to live it out, 
there's a proclivity that we start drifting away from those things. So on one hand, it's an in-house conversation. You know, you mentioned the story I had with my friends and, uh, you know, for them, that was different. That wasn't like a theological right nuance where they got caught into like a different way of Christianity. They fell into sin and temptation. And that really looked more like when Jesus describes the parable of the seeds, where mm. some seeds grow up for a while, they don't have a good root. And so they burn up and disappear. Right. And so I don't think this is uh, a, a cut and dried story about seeds that lacked roots. I think this story is about really the church that had not yet established its roots. And so Paul is fighting hard to establish a theological roots of the church that would guide us for the next 2000 years. And so on one hand, yeah, this is an internal debate holding to orthodoxy, but I think the, the biggest place that if we want to make a direct correlation to our lives today, this conversation, it would be our church as elders uh, getting in the room, me and you and the other elders fighting over what we believe. How do we address these topics? What has the church always believed? And at the non-elder level for folks listening who are just who are members of our church or visitors or attenders of our church, these are the conversations you're having with your small group, with your Christian friends about what does it mean to be a believer? How do we live this thing out? When your friend says, well, I don't think I need to forgive all the time, right? God only forgives us when we ask for it. I'm not going to forgive them unless they ask for it, right? You're now you're in a theological debate about what do you do, right? So this is when it's not as contentious. It's not a public argument. You're not affecting the history of the church, but you're establishing what do we believe as a community about what the gospel says about forgiveness here. So I think it's that kind of insider knowledge that can lead to a culture being created that's moving away from the gospel or holding fast to it. In your sermon, you mentioned that a great tool for this is, in fact, confrontation. It's confronting the issue head on. And so I want to move into that in verse 14. This is the confrontation that Paul presents Cephas here. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I, Paul, said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? This leads me to my skeptics, skeptics question. question. And let me tell you, Pastor Denny, this is might be one of my favorite skeptic questions because one of the commentaries that I was coming through offered some historical interpretations of this very passage. And as we noted, it doesn't say a lot about things. And so there's been a lot of different ways people have taken this, including some ancient skeptics named Celsus and Porphyry. I love it. So ancient skeptics Celsus and Porphyry say that this scene degrades the church because mm -hmm. it just shows that this community is just always fighting. They're just a culture that um, says, you know what, I'm going to step on your toes and I'm going to call you out when there's something wrong. And, you know, I can imagine in our culture today, uh, a culture that values uh, feeling good. You would probably not want to be a part of a culture that calls people out or has those tough conversations. So I'm wondering, what do you say to Celsus and Porphyry here? <laughs> it's funny when you said that, I, I thought back to Acts chapter 4 four or five, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. If you're unfamiliar with the story, it's a beautiful time in the early church where people are selling all their possessions, giving it to the apostles, and they're caring for the poor. It's it's amazing. And then Ananias and Sapphira are a married couple and, and they lie about money uh, and a property that they sold and the Holy Spirit kills them on the spot. 
And as you were telling, asking about the skeptics question about a church that's always fighting, I thought, you know, it'd be funny if we read Acts chapter four or five, wherever that story is. And we said, well, how do we even trust the early church? They're always just dying and lying, right? It's, But that is one of those exception stories that proves the rule, right? This is, we see how beautiful the church was because when someone sinned, they died on the spot and God kept the church pure at its earliest uh, stage. And so Ananias and Sapphira is a story of warning to us, but it's also a story that God takes the purity of his church seriously. I think the early church did not have a reputation of fighting all the time. I think the fact that there was a fight about theology and including people in the church that was public made it into the scriptures shows us like Ananias and Sapphira, this was a big deal. This was a rare thing, and this was an amazing thing that got allowed to happen to create purity in the church for thousands of years to come. And so I don't read this story and think, ah, they're fighting all the time. I think, you know what? If that happened today, the same thing would happen, right? Imagine we're in church on Sunday. We're two elders in this church. Imagine you're preaching on Sunday morning from the platform, and you start talking about how, you know what? Like, unless you obey the law of Moses, you don't get to go to heaven. Unless you're circumcised, you don't get to go to heaven. The exact same thing, right? Uh-oh. Um, I would be forced to leave my seat, come up to the stage, grab my own microphone, and in front of the whole church, right, rebuke you for what you're teaching, right. have you sit down and tell the church that you cannot listen to AJ. You know what I mean? Like, that's what we have to do because this is a big deal. Mm. Uh, I don't think me doing that would prove the point that our church is always fighting. I think me doing that would make our people think, oh my goodness, like, They believe something here and they guard it seriously. And the fact that we have never had to do that, you know, in the (laughs) 70 years of, you know, history our church has had or however long we've been here uh, is a testament to we have a ton of unity around the essentials of the faith. And yet I tell you the truth, if anyone came and preached this message from our pulpit, we would do the exact same thing. We confront them in front of the entire congregation and put them in their theological place. I don't think this says that the church is always fighting any more than Ananias and Sapphira says the church was always dying. I think this reminds us just like that story, that the purity and holiness of the church is an, a very important thing. And sometimes you have to have really critical conversations to guard the purity of the church, especially at its earliest stages. Let me walk you through some more of the traditional interpretations that I found and ask you one final question here. Um, some people took this entire scene as an attack on Paul's ministry, saying this guy's, you know, over the top. You need to calm him down. Some people took it and attacked Peter and and said, "Hey, there's like this hostility against everything Jewish," and so they were advocating these this angle. Um, some people tried to claim that Cephas was actually a different Cephas and not the the actual Peter trying to protect Peter's integrity. Um, some people even saw it as a staged event concocted between Peter and Paul here. We should do that at church. Oh man, that would be something. But then Augustine comes later and says, Hey, like it seems like something's going on where, uh, even though Peter's the older person and the more experienced church leader that Paul has a right to rebuke him if the truth is compromised. And so I'm wondering based on, you know, the limited information we have, what is that one lens that you walk this through? And I think um, you kind of explained that in your sermon in verse 14 there. I think the, the lens we talked about on Sunday is the lens of the gospel. This was brought up because it's a gospel issue. And in the church, yeah, maybe Peter is the first among equals as we look at the leadership of the early church. I don't see 
in the church, any power struggle, we say all the time, you know, Hey, yeah, I get it. I'm the senior pastor of three crosses. I tell our church, I tell our elders, Jesus is the real senior pastor of three crosses, right? I I know I'm commissioned to lead at some level, but we, as an eldership, we all submit to him together. And so I made it, told a story about if I'm, if you're preaching a message that doesn't align with the gospel, I'm going to get up there and take the microphone. The same time, if I get up and preach that message, you're allowed to come and take the microphone and be like, Hey guys, we're going to have a conversation backstage or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, um, because the gospel is in charge. Jesus is in charge. Mm-hmm. Peter and Paul are not in charge. Um, I, I look at this issue. I don't really buy any of those things theories because it just feels so in line with the rest of the New Testament, right? That we see a Jerusalem council where they're arguing about this exact issue amongst the apostles. So it makes sense that they're still having to wrestle with it. You know, in this case, I see pastoral epistles written over and over again about how to guard the theology of the church, how to raise up elders and have deacons that hold the deep truths of the faith of the clear conscience, how to make sure that elders can teach the message of the church, guarding the theology, how to call out people who are bringing in false teachers, how to deal with Gnosticism, how to deal with Judaizers. That is that is a large portion of real estate in the New Testament. I think of Galatians, where this letter resides, resides uh, that starts out by saying, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, right, he says, after beginning with the Spirit, why are you trying to attain your goal by human effort, right? The entire book of Galatians is written to take these churches of Galatia and dial them back into the real gospel. And so the entire New Testament is Jesus delivering the gospel and then the apostles guarding, sharing, establishing, and wrestling over how to maintain the purity of the church as it relates to the beautiful gospel message that the disciples are commissioned to preach to every creature and every tongue, tribe, and nation on planet earth. Well, I look forward to walking alongside of you as we both work together to protect the gospel for Three Crosses Church. And uh, Pastor Danny, thank you so much for talking with us and giving us this firm foundation, building it through the Going Deeper podcast. We'll see you next time.